welcome to Best Picture. Now here's your hosts, Andy Young and Colin McLaughlin. Why didn't you take off all your clothes? You could have won 40 Oscars. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> not the, okay. I think it's a, sometimes okay, I mean, the ones you pick are ones where I'm like, I don't, that's not the line I was expecting you to do. So it throws me off. Uh, I was, do like I it mean, though. That, that exchange is my favorite exchange in the movie, but also like looking that up scene quotes is great. for it, it's either, it's either a very, very long paragraph dialogue that I didn't really want to slog all the way through to get to the bit or like really quick jabs in between a long exchange that out of context doesn't really make a lot of sense. I thought the one you were going to do, because the most famous one I know is the one where she's like, uh, well, I proved once and for all that the limb is mightier than the thumb. I thought you were going to do the limb. Is mightier I thought than that that would be. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, people might. I thought they were expecting that from me. You know, the kids, the listeners. I'm going to call yeah. the listeners the kids going forward. Yeah. But wh- why would they be expecting it from you? Why would they expect you to make a, a pun of, of that uh, caliber? They'd be expecting it from me because this is a podcast called Best Picture with Andy and Colin. It's a podcast about the Oscars, the Academy Awards, specifically those rare films that win the Oscar for Best Picture, the context of their Oscar race, and the legacy of their Oscar win, and the question of what an Oscar win means. My name is Colin McLaughlin. And my name is Andy Young. And we were going to record today, and then uh, some stuff happened to where we thought maybe we wouldn't record today. So I took the, that new window of time in my day, and I put on Mutiny on the Bounty, which is going to be our next episode. And oh, shoot, you were already seafaring. Okay. I, yeah, I, I was watching Mutiny on the Bounty, and because that's a seafaring-minded film, I poured myself a nice uh, glass of rum. So <laughs> I'm in a bit of a mood right now. Oh, shoot. This I is going to make it. this episode it. kind of fun. That's great. Oh, I would have met you at your level if I had known. We'll definitely uh, we'll plan it for mutiny, but for sure. I'll make sure we do it on a day I'm not working so we can uh, get seaworthy. Jesus Christ. But we're not talking about mutiny on the bounty today. We're talking about it happened one night. Yep. And we're not talking about that, Frank. We're talking about this incredible Frank. movie. We're the not best. talking about I... that, Frank. Yeah, we're not talking about Frank Lloyd. We're talking, we're about, talking Frank about the Capra. better of the two Franks. Frank, Frank Capra. Capra. Yeah, I think he really is because like Cavalcade, I think, is the only Frank Lloyd movie I've ever seen. But like this guy did it happen one night. He did Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He did another Oscar film. You can't take it with you. Like, I'm, I'm excited for Mutiny on the Bounty, but I feel like of, of the two Franks, Frank Capra is probably the, the best Frank. I'm excited for Mutiny on the Bounty because my Clark Gable knowledge is very limited. And this movie mm. just put me so on board with Clark Gable and everything he does that I really can't wait to watch it. But that's awesome. I mean, knowing how much we like to talk about uh, context and legacies in this. Did you know this? So uh, this movie we're talking about today, it happened one night. It's directed by Frank Capra and it's mm-hmm. written by Robert Riskin, who they were kind of a legendary writer director duo for a chunk of the thirties going into the forties before they had a falling out. But they mm-hmm. had a, uh, you know, a shingle set up with Columbia and uh, 1933, I believe going into 1934, they had done enough hits that they kind of had uh sort of a blank check to do whatever they wanted next within the means of what that studio could do. Did you know what movie they wanted to do instead of this movie? No, what did they want to do? They wanted to do Mutiny on the Bounty. And really? Yes. Wow. Uh, so Frank, so I'm, 
I, I, sorry, I was supposed to try to pull up his filmography and I just got a little lost in the weeds because I have to be very careful with how I use my internet when we're recording Zoom. <laughs> but so they did, uh, so 1933, they do The Bitter Tea of General Yen and Lady for a Day, both of which do okay enough that they're kind of getting set up for their next project. And they want to do Mutiny on the Bounty. And because Columbia is a minor studio compared to the majors at that time, Columbia says the rights, for the book, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty that the movie we're going to watch is based off of was such mm-hmm. a hit that the rights were too expensive. So wow. that's what leads them to start kind of going through the filing cabinet and seeing, all right, what do we have? And they find the Nightbus short story, which they adapt into this movie. Well, that's really interesting because the big thing I've always heard about this is that Clark Gable was essentially forced to do this movie and did not like it he thought it was going to be like a huge bomb and like he hadn't really done comedies up to this point nobody other than frank cabra was excited about making this movie yeah even the writer robert riskin thought that capra was joking because when uh capra decided to do it because it was just one of those days where they're in their office they've been reading through uh summaries and log lines all day they go through night bus frank capra takes it into his room and he reads it and as the story goes, a few hours later, he comes back into the office and tells Riskin, all right, we're going to do it. And to Riskin, Nightbus was such a nothing story that he'd already forgotten that's what they were talking about when Capra mm. said they were going to do it. And it's worth, it's worth noting that this film won not only Best Picture, but also Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Writer. So it's everybody, Yeah, as, aside from uh, Director Egg on their face for all thinking that this was going to be a big bomb or that people wouldn't dig it. It was a huge hit. It gives rise to the phrase, the big five, which are the awards you just said, picture, director, Mm -hmm. actor, actress, screenplay. It is one Mm -hmm. of only three movies in history to have won all five of those awards. Do you know what the other two are? I'm going to guess One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. And Silence of the Lambs? Yes. Hey. (laughs) It was when I was, you know, I feel so bad making you do that box office thing in our last episode when I was editing the episode i just thought why am i making him do this when he should be making me do this because no, it feels I, great i love getting a win my I'll definitely, i'm yeah, so proud I love of quizzing you. you too i feel i feel great because i was like i i had a good feeling about cuckoo but then it's like i was trying to rack my brain and of course it's like halloween time so i've been recommending silence of the lambs to a lot of people and i was like i'm pretty sure everybody won for that one wow but no one right. else i i figured that number would be a little higher than three well the thing with it is is that you rarely see a movie that has nominations for both best actor and best actress. Usually right. it's actor and supporting actress or vice versa. It's you don't really see a two-hander all that often anymore. And I'm curious as we go through this to see movies that do win five awards but they win a supporting category instead of the lead. Right, cuz we do have not like in this last year we had Marriage Story which was I don't think it won any of them but it was nominated for It was nominated five. for all of those, right. So we do see it every once and again, but yeah, that is interesting. I can't think of too uh too many others that have at least gotten like 3 out of 5 or whatever. Right. Um but this is also notable because in addition to being one of the only what do you call them the only fivers, big 5? The big 5. The big in addition to being one of the only big 5s, this is only one of the only comedies to ever win best picture. Right. And, you know, I was looking through other comedies to have won Best Picture, and it's kind of dubious in terms of what you define as a comedy. Like, some outlets get into will Martian, say, well, Golden Globe territory. Technically, yeah. well, tell you, oh, my foam disc is falling. I'm trying to increase my audio quality by buying more and more expensive toys, and they're all just <laughs> falling apart. I'm playing no with it. But, like, technically, you know, you could make the argument that Green Book is a comedy. You know? Yeah. 
A little bit, yeah. And it's not as much of a screwball, but yeah. Yeah, and technically you could make the argument that the artist is a comic. It's just like, the, to me, it's like, it, are you a comedy or are you a drama with levity in it? Like, is Forrest Gump a comedy? You know what I mean? Like, it's a, like this is a straight-up comedy. Annie Hall, I feel like, is the only other one that I can think of that's a straight-up comedy that is one, even though obviously that has dramatic elements. Do you consider uh, Rain Man to be a comedy? And I think the thing about Rain Man is that if, because I don't think Rain Man's based off a true story, because if it was, Mm. then it would firmly be like a biographical film. I always thought it was based on a true story, but that makes sense. Is it? Yeah. Well, now I have to look it up because I keep, I keep having, just making absolutely idiotic mistakes. By the way, uh, we said (laughs) last week that Cavalcade was the last pre-code film to win Best Picture. Wrong! It's this movie. It happened one night. It is this movie. That's because right. the the uh the Hayes code the production code goes on it officially is instated uh in July of 1934 and this movie comes out before then. Fellas, if you like ankles, if you like shoulders, if you like uh wrists, then uh, is this the film for you cuz Rain Man is an original story it looks like. It is an original story. Okay. Cuz for some the reason... character the characterization is based off of a conglomeration of people that the screenwriter knew in real life, but that's but just it is like an original story. Okay, because that's yeah. you know I haven't seen that one since high school, but that's always the one where I think Tom Cruise says "Show me the money" for some reason because they go to like because <laughs> then they're like a, the whole card counting thing. So for some reason, I always right. think that's the movie so you get he that. In. <laughs> that's funny. Um. But I'm no, excited this is to one... watch Rain Man again because I want to see I how Tom Cruise's performance holds up because I'm, that's yeah. right before he's get he gets three you know no is Magnolia a 1999 movie or a 2000 movie because Cruise has it's a 99 okay, Cru- I think it's that famous year. so yeah Tom Cruise has three uh, acting nominations all of which happen I believe in the 90s Born on the Fourth of July Jerry Maguire and Magnolia and he never gets mm-hmm. an acting nomination again. And yeah. Rain Man feels like a movie, especially with how big the movie was, both as a commercial hit and as an Oscar player. It's weird that Cruz isn't nominated in that year. Sure, but that's that's Dustin Hoffman's movie. That's not Tom Cruise's movie. And I was I'm excited for it because it, uh, Dustin Hoffman. He's one the of my titular role, time. Andy. He's the he rain is the man, man who reigns. Uh, he's the rainmaker, as they say. But but no, to get back to like this is like one of the only comedies, which is still so surprising to me because you know at the start. When we started the Oscars, it's like, yeah, like Charlie Chaplin's getting his own award. We have a comedy directing section. Even when the short film category came out, we have three different sections. And one of them is just for comedy films. The first one, of course, going to Laurel and Hardy. So it's interesting to see that, like, that this film kind of snuck through, even though I feel like it was kind of a surprise win compared to some of the other films that were nominated. But we slowly, I feel like after this, are going to start seeing less and less comedies be uh, recognized at the awards uh, in any uh, category, so it's 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 nice to to see one be recognized because this is a great comedy. It makes the five category uh, sweep all the more interesting in terms of Oscar history, mm-hmm. where you would so expect something, you know, something like Gone with the Wind to have that accolade, or like just something that yeah. feels very traditionally Oscar-y. and like Casablanca you know, or something like that. Yeah. This is yeah, like this is a movie that no one but Frank Capra really wanted to make. The rumor it's it's a Columbia movie, which Columbia isn't exactly a poverty row studio at this time. It's a minor studio compared to the big leagues like uh, MGM and Warner Brothers, but it's still a smaller studio. It's known for making cheaper movies 
genre movies, serials, kind of, it strays away from what is considered to be like serious filmmaking just because they are more budget conscientious. Clark Gable's a rising star at this time. He's on contract at MGM. He is in this movie and he was not the first choice. Do you know who the first choice to play Peter was in this? Yeah, it was uh, Robert Montgomery, right? It was Robert Montgomery. Do you know why mm-hmm. Robert Montgomery turned the movie down? No, why? At the time that they were putting the movie together, Robert Montgomery was shooting a romantic movie that also had a scene on a bus in it. Really? So they were worried people would get like confused? Yeah, they just thought it was too similar to what he was already doing. So he's out. And it eventually comes to Gable. And the rumor is that MGM loaned Gable to Columbia to be in this movie because Gable uh, was kind of getting a little full of himself and he wanted more money because he was a rising star. Right. The actual story, as I have read, is just that at this time in studio history, when you have an actor of that caliber, they're on contract. So you're paying them a weekly salary. And Gable Mm -hmm. was drawing in $2,000 a week and they hadn't put him in a movie in a while. And they didn't have anything on the horizon that seemed like it would be a good use for him. So they were essentially paying his salary for nothing. So they lent him to Columbia for $2,500 a week so that MGM made a profit of $500 a week off of Gable's salary as he went to go be in this movie. Oh, wow. And again, from everything I've heard, he thought the film was like super beneath him. He thought it was going to bomb. Uh, he did not think it was going to... And it's like, you know, this is long before, um, you know, the gun with the wind... Clark Cable that we all know and love like he had been in a bunch of stuff but nothing like super prominent that I think anyone would have heard of today this is definitely his first like major role no, no he's on he's definitely on the rise here this oh, is really? I what, mean this what, is a movie uh, that cements him but he's definitely on the rise he's in a movie uh oh god I sorry I'm just I'm going through my notes so he is in <laughs> a movie with Joan no Gene Harlow so he's in a movie okay. with Gene Harlow called Red Dust in I think the late 20s and that's a pre-code movie and i mean it it's fairly forgettable but there is a love scene in the movie where gable has noticeably not shaved so he's got kind of a stubbly face and he puts his hand on gene harlow's boob while they're kissing and apparently (laughs) like the eroticism of that scene made everyone go gaga for clark gable and everyone decided this is going to be the standard of american masculinity in cinema for the next decade so he's definitely on the rise. He's not so powerful yet that he can refuse to be in this movie, but he's definitely a known star. I think that Claudette Colbert, though, is a much bigger star. At yeah, the time she was in movie. like three big movies in this year. Uh, it happened one night, Cleopatra and Imitation of Life. Cle- which uh, Cleopatra, she actually wins the Oscar. For, or no. No, she, no, she wins, wins the this. Oscar for this. Yeah, she wins for Cleopatra, this, even though Cleopatra yeah. is also nominated. We'll get into, there's a lot of interesting stuff about Cleopatra later right. on. But, and Claudette um, Colbert had worked with Capra before and did not like him, and she didn't like the movie that they did. So she, as kind of like a challenging fuck you to him, said, okay, I will be in this movie if you pay me $50,000 and you can guarantee that we will wrap production in four weeks so that I can go on vacation. And naturally, she's thinking that the studio will say, uh, no, we can't do that. Capra says yes. And they do wow. it. And so she gets paid $50,000 for this movie, which is a seventh of the film's budget. The film costs $350,000 to make. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that so we'll get into all the Oscar stuff later, but it, it, that's just such a perfect segue for. So she wins. Uh, she was also in Cleopatra, which was nominated, but she wins for It Happened One Night. 
and she didn't think she was going to win, so she didn't go to the ceremony. Don't tell the about... story yet. Don't tell the story. Don't... We should save. Th- oh. We should save this for for later because it's crazy. okay. Copy that because there's some sweet irony in it. But uh, okay, you'll have to keep listening to hear for it. But let's let's get into it. Happened one night. We're we're talking a lot about the business of it. What did you think of the flick? You hadn't seen it before. They wrapped the production on this movie, and Claudette Colbert famously said, "I w- I just wrapped the worst movie ever." Yeah, and <laughs> uh, the movie premieres in New York, and it does okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's not really bringing down the house it does okay it's not till it leaves new york and starts to play in second run theaters across the country that word of mouth kind of makes it into this unexpected hit and it ends up being i think the third or fourth highest grossing movie of the year because you have to remember this 1934 we're still in the middle of the depression and this is just kind of what you know all the films that we've seen recently when were like kennedy's like big epic dramas and i think people just needed that classic escapism for two hours. So it's uh, really interesting to see that this was the year that comedy won. It's not the first movie to embody uh, the, the elements of a screwball comedy, but it is ostensibly the first screwball comedy as it is kind of the definitive romantic comedy. And you know, there had been romantic comedies before, but this movie cements what romantic comedies are going to be for the next 90 years. I like, yeah. it is and so just influential as a movie, as you know, in terms of the structure, in terms of the tone, in terms of like how it gets made. It's wild. Um, okay. So it happened when I was the fifth highest grossing movie of this year. Yeah. And it's, well, it's just also, I can't, you know, uh, Clark and Claudette obviously weren't the first choices for, I can't picture anybody else. It's just that perfect blend of, uh, you know, the romantic leads and how powerful that was probably at the box office. Uh, to see the two of them together, uh, that I, I just worked so well for me, you know. Like there, I can't, it's, I can't imagine this movie with any other uh, couple at the time. No, you can't. It's, I mean, it's just, it just kind of speaks to like that scrappiness that you love about movie making, where mm-hmm. you know when you're putting it together, you don't know what it's going to be. When you're shooting it, you don't know what it's going to be. When you're editing it, you kind of know what it's going to be, but you really don't know what you have until an audience sees it. And exactly at that point, it's in the audience's hand, whether this movie is going to be something that we're still talking about today, or if it's going to be one of hundreds of other movies that have been lost to time. You know, and I, I've, I haven't seen this since film school, but rewatching it for the first time in 10 years, I just, I just fell in love with it all over again. It's so, like i don't know like even you know it is like a great like romantic comedy and stuff but it's also got all of these like completely wacky i would almost call them like david wayne-esque jokes in it that just make me cackle laughing like still when it gets to like the guy uh, when they're hitchhiking with the or uh, they're hitching a ride with the guy in the car and he just starts belting out all these songs like it just i know like i i wouldn't expect to see that in a movie of this time like it feels like something we won't see till later on with like zucker and uh stuff like that but it's just so ridiculously wacky outside of the realm of what we've seen before in like quote unquote comedies uh, before this. Uh, It just is. I don't know. There's just so many little moments like that though, that just like make me like cackle laughing. When we talked about Broadway melody in that episode, I gave that movie more credit than you because I admitted, obviously this feels very cliched and tropey, but that's only because this movie is inventing all of the tropes that this genre is going to use over and over and over again in the coming years. Of course, as a result, Broadway melody feels very dated and very much like a product of its time. This movie creates so much that we now consider integral to the romantic comedy genre. And yet it feels 
so incredibly modern. It feels like it's just a head above so many other movies that we're going to see in the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to today that are referencing it or utilizing its premise in some way or another. It is just... It, it's just a masterpiece. It's just a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. And I love it so goddamn much. And, like, yeah. I just... I cannot get over how good it is. And, you know, I think that sometimes we can be snobby as fans of cinema, you know, in our modern age where we can look back at older movies and be like, well, that's a good movie for its time. Or they did mm -hmm. a good job with what they were working with at the time. And like, no, like I will put this movie up there against any movie that's won best picture over the last 20 years. Oh, even any like romantic comedy. It's just like this. Yeah. This launched a thousand ships, but this is still, it doesn't feel dated to me it doesn't feel like tropey at all like it feels purely original which i think is just you know a credit to the brilliant script and that just all these like great like callback jokes that they have that really like bring the through line together and it's like you want them to be together at the end of the movie too like you feel that like emotional tug when he goes to see the father you know and you know like there's a cynicism to watching movies like this where it's like the two hot people that are top build, obviously they're going to fall in love and get together by the end, but that mm -hmm. doesn't make the viewing experience any less exciting. And I think that why this movie feels so timeless is like romantic comedy is kind of a timeless genre because ultimately the success of any romantic comedy relies on the relationship between the two actors that are at the center of it. And you can repackage any premise any time period, any like situation around that. But ultimately it comes down to charisma and mm -hmm. that's why romantic comedy is going to go on to be such a powerful genre because you can come down to, I don't really need to even sell you on what the story of this movie is. It's actor a and actress B and they're going to be in a romantic movie together. And that's yeah. what gets people to see it. I'm just, I'm on such like a high right now because I watched, um, when Harry met Sally for the first time just a couple of days ago. Oh, really? I oh, know that's it's so one. good. And I, I just was thinking the whole time, like, you know, as a writer and, and, and like, as someone who reads a lot of writing, there's, there is kind of a difference between like writing a screenplay and writing a movie, you know, where mm -hmm. like when you are writing a screenplay, it's about the reading experience of the person that you want to get through to the end but there's so much that's integral to movie making that just can't really exist on the page and romantic comedy especially where so much is relied in tone in actors delivery of lines and in those silent moments that you could never really describe like on a screenplay page but for make all the difference of a movie like this it's like it's just like like watching a magician do like my favorite magic trick i love it Absolutely. so much and like, well, so I, uh, I edited my first feature film uh, earlier this year, which is going to come out in 2021 and it's a romantic comedy and me and the director, Wait, you're did... an editor. <laughs> Do I not bring that up enough? But we, uh, but we no. watched a bunch of like, Do you have thoughts about the best editing Oscar. I, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but, uh, I, the, <laughs> I'm so baiting we, you. Uh, this is called baiting. Exactly. Well, I'll save the Oscar stuff for that, but I want to say, like, you know, we watched, like, When Harry Met Sally and Four Weddings, Big Chill, all the before movies. You've got, like, you know, even when the romantic comedies aren't great, there's still this magic to them, and I think a lot of that does come from the thing you can't put on the page, like you said. It's the charisma of the actors. It's, uh, you know, like, the if they're going to, like, blend and mesh together and be able to tell the story, it's the timing. It's, you know, all of these factors that go into any other movie, but it is, you know, we'll see a lot of romantic films, uh, whatever 
category we want to put that into because that's overarching win uh the best picture oscar we don't really see a lot of traditional uh romantic comedies win or even be nominated after this and and i think it's a tragedy because to make a truly great one it just takes all of this like alchemy that's uh almost impossible and you know just from being in the thick of it i just have so much more of an appreciation for making those that fine line of like making these like uh two dollar uh dvd bin at walmart and making them uh, all-time classics and it's just such a hard line to walk uh and i think it's a shame that again that we don't see the things that i will be a heel about are just like the editing oscars and the uh the lack of comedy representation as we we go later on but um i don't know i just uh i love this movie i think it's fantastic i think before we watched this one you and i's favorite thus far was all quiet on the Western Front. I think that's safe to say. Does that one happen one night? Top that for you, or where are you? I haven't decided yet. I'm still, yeah. I'm still like I watched it yesterday. I'm still kind of mulling over it. In that, I think this movie's win is definitely a win I enjoy more than All Quiet's win, just in terms of the importance of it and what it says about the Oscars and what the Oscars have the ability to do in terms of drawing people's attention to certain films. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, it's Apple, like, name me two movies more different than It Happened One Night and All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> well, that's so going to be hard the to really that we're going to face, yeah. It's right. like, how do you compare the, even like, uh, you know, The Godfather and Godfather 2? How do you, like, even when films are very similar, it's just so hard to rank films. It's like, how is Parasite supposed to stack up to the Deer Hunter when they're just completely yeah. different in every way, shape, and form? Do you want um, to? Do you want me just to alienate whatever small audience we've built up by this point? Oh, I would. I would love it. Godfather One is better than Godfather Two. No. Yeah. Wait. Wait till we. Wait till you rewatch it again. I, I, people always say that, but like, wait till you rewatch Godfather Two. I think you're gonna see it differently. Here's. I mean, like, look. I can explain it to you right now. Of the two films, one of them has Marlon Brando featured in a prominent role playing Don Vito Corleone, and the other one doesn't have Marlon Brando in a prominent role playing Don Vito Corleone. And that's all the argument I feel like I need to make. (laughs) Have you ever seen uh, The Freshman? It's this 90s comedy with uh, Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick. I just watched it for the first time, and he essentially plays the guy who influenced the movie The Godfather. The fil- they watch scenes from The Godfather in this movie. Okay. But like he like Marlon Brando plays a gangster who's not Don Vito Corleone. He plays this completely different guy, but they're like, he's the guy The Godfather was based off of. And he even like has like okay. the, the pug chops and stuff. And it's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world to see Matthew Broderick watching a scene from The Godfather in the movie and then a, a scene later he's talking to The Godfather. All um right. we'll 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 save all that for the 70s. Uh do we have any other last thoughts on it happened one night before we jump into cuz this is a really this might be my favorite Oscars that year this year. There's a lot. This is a great Oscars. I mean like we could talk about the movie a lot like but it also is, you know, it's a it's such a standard romantic comedy plot that like what is there to talk about? Like you have mm. you have Gable, you have Colbert. I think that both of them are exceptionally well-written characters just in that like you know, like you have Colbert is playing Ellie, who is essentially a very spoiled heiress, but also it proves herself to be very capable and is the only person to call Gable on his bullshit. Exactly. After she spends the entire movie calling her on her bullshit. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is a movie about two people that kind of just feel like life is happening to them. Right? Yeah. And like, that is their connection. And that's what I something I really liked about the structure of this movie. Like vignettes is the wrong word, but it's like we have the it's underlying. It's not vignettes. Thing of the it's chase, it's a very we, 
very firm three-act rom-com structure. You have 30 minutes of us meeting the two characters and having mm-hmm. it established why these two people should absolutely not work together. They are polar oh, sure. I opposites. Guess- if we're if we're talking those terms, I'm in more the fun and games of it of like the the second act of just watching them in all these yeah different that's what the second act falling yeah. in love in all these different ways that's right. kind of more what I'm saying of just what I really loved about this film is like seeing all of those different scenes uh, together. You have a first act of setting up the characters and just like showing how they're polar opposites to one another. Then you have a a long second act of just like you said essentially a series of misadventures where they play off of each other, fun hijinks ensue, and then mm-hmm. by the end of the second act they've started to realize that it's not all fun and games. They actually have real feelings for each other. They both separately reject those feelings going into a third act where it seems like it's not going to work out. And then boom, it does. And that is to the T the structure of almost every romantic comedy that I can name off the top of my head. True. But there's something that this one and a lot of other romantic comedies obviously do this as well, but because this is our last pre-code Oscar, the other thing that this really has is sexual tension. It's just, you know, like we have those scenes in the hotel room where they have to like put the curtain up and just that kind of like seeing those silhouettes and that yearning. I don't know. I just I, I, I really feel like. A little but that, bit of that curtain is a very well. pre is a very postcode thing. Like, you know, I mm. think that we're going to talk about plenty of movies made in the throes of the Hollywood code that are just dripping with sexual tension. I think oh, that sure. what's interesting about this movie to me is that it is technically pre code, but it is embodying a lot of the tricks that directors are going to come to rely on to convey things like sex and sex and sexuality within the confines of a much more puritanical Hollywood. Like, sure. Are you thinking like the hitchhiking this, scene or what are you thinking of? The hitchhiking scene? I mean, you know, there's the scene where the detectives show up and they're looking for Ellie and Gable gets down and he unbuttons her blouse to make it look like they're in the middle of a fight. And then after they leave, he goes and he rebuttons her blouse for her and it's like she doesn't notice but he like is kind of just looking at her for a bit and like that's kind of the first moment you get a sense of real desire from his character because the night before he took his clothes off in front of her to get her to not look at him and he was kind of just fucking around like oh, Gable yeah, is great. a stinker in this movie and I love <laughs> him like you think of how many movies where he plays kind of just sort of a stern masculine man with a mustache and in this one like he's not so much a piece of shit, but he's kind of an asshole and you love it. Like you I guess love I also, to see it. I also like just the, the curtain because it's such a great payoff for the end where it's like, it is you don't even really see it. We don't talk payoff. about it. And then just that perfect, I, I would love to make like a, uh, like some sort of like album of like the best last shots of these movies, you know, the best, like, like opening shot of uh, Oscar winners, the best ending shot of best picture winner. Cause I feel like this is definitely a contender for like best, like cut to credits. Here's a question for you. What do you think the it is in the title? It happened one night. Oh, interesting. because I'm, to me, I think it's them dropping the curtain and having sex for the first time. I think it's that, or because the other thing I was wondering, like which one night, because this movie kind of takes place over the course of like four or five days. Right. So I, I would wonder like the, it, I don't know. It, it like that is that is a good thing to me. It was uh, the idea of them like it's the first night of like them. I because I feel like that's even though they, they still they have their them, meet. That's cute. when we start having to see the meet cute exactly. To me, that's it. It happened one night is the start, but that's yeah, that's a good argument for it being like the ending is kind of the it and the night. I mean, it happened one night is a fairly generic title, but it does kind of beg that question because the short story this movie is based off of is called Night Bus, which like. 
also not a great title given what the plot of this movie is, but maybe a little bit more specific than it happened one night. Mm-hmm. Well, I also, I feel like we don't, uh, going back to what you were talking about, just kind of like having these two bankable scar- stars, you want to see them crack jokes and fall in love. We haven't talked a lot about like posters uh, on this show yet, but something I just, I, the, well, we did with Grand poster. Hotel. We did with Grand Hotel. That's right. Because that's when we first see like the big ensemble cast. But I really love the It Happened One Night poster because it's something we will go on to see a million and seven times, especially nowadays where it's like big head here, big head there, kind of right. generic background. But it just it works so well of just seeing kind of their like like Gable has that side eye to her and she's kind of looking ahead and it just like has that perfect like McConaughey-esque vibe to it. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it. I, I mean, love, we're like, just going to see that rom-com, over so. and over. You know, I think I, The Big Sleep is a really famous example because there are posters for The Big Sleep that don't even say Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. It's literally Bogart Bacall because you already oh, know. Wow. You know, and that's, like, that's one of my favorite noir films. Okay. And it doesn't all, even always have to apply to like a romance. Sometimes it's just about like two heavyweight actors that are like them being in a movie together is an event. Like before we knew right. anything about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we knew Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt going to be in a movie together. Mm-hmm. And that was the early excitement for that. Yeah. Well, I know uh, like we've seen like a lot of like moments from this film, like par- like. I, I feel like I've seen like bits and pieces like we've talked about the the wings shot obviously but like you want to hear uh, my funny story about the reference I finally got for it happened one night okay because I the two that I thought of were uh Lauren Hardy's way out west uh where they parody the hitchhiking scene but then also uh space balls and the wedding scene those were the two big ones that kind of came to my mind watching it um but i'm sure there's other yeah hit me with some of the uh what what uh, uh references did you kind of catch that we've seen since um, par- parodied or however so when i was seven my favorite vhs that i owned was the uh the crossover episode of the batman animated series and the superman animated series that bruce tim did they it was oh, yeah. a two-part special crossover event that they put on vhs and sold and i owned it and i watched it every single day and there's a scene in that movie where Lex Luthor gets into his limo and finds out that it's been hijacked by Harley Quinn and Harley is joyriding through Metropolis and they go to pick up the Joker and the Joker pulls up his pant leg to reveal he's wearing a high heel and he sticks his leg out onto the street to signal Harley Quinn to pull over for him. And uh, that is a reference fun. to this movie that absolutely 20 years later, I'm like, Oh, Bruce Tim was cribbing from it happened one night when he did that. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I feel like we're going to see that a lot later on because I think I've said this before, but I've been a, a lifelong like Simpsons fan since I was four. And by the time I became I got into movies, when I started watching all these classics, you start being like, oh, the Simpsons did that. Oh, that's uh, so the Simpsons parodied this. And I feel like we're going to start seeing that more and more as we get later on into the years. But I, I, I always appreciate seeing that something has kind of withstood the test of time because we see it mimicked in our pop culture, whether it's immediately or 10, 20, 50 years later. And that scene where she lifts up her skirt to get the hitchhiker, like that's really one of the few like elements of this movie that's truly Mm pre-code. Like that's the one thing that probably they wouldn't get away with, you know, post-code. Everything else in this movie feels very teed up to like get past the censors in terms of the romance and the sexuality of these are two hot people and they're sleeping in a hotel room together with only a curtain between their beds. And how do we Mm -hmm. make that? integral to their romance right 
It's a good point. Well, should we get into the uh, the Oscars of it all? Because I've got I, I want to finish that Claude Eric Colbert story I was going to tell, but we can. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff from this year. So this year's Oscars, they're back at the Biltmore, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and this is our uh, first one where it's the full year eligibility. It's from January 1st to December 31st. This is the first. Yes, this is the first Oscars where you have a 12 month eligibility period, January to December. And I got to yeah. say, like so much about this year's ceremony makes me kind of feel like, ladies and gentlemen, the Academy Awards have arrived. Like, I it's feel this like really this feels the, like the first year. Yeah, this is the first year where you can kind of see broadly like this is the template for what the oscars are going to be both in terms of the categories and in the kind of things that are winning and it's also yeah because we see like we have like a thousand guests we we start to see a kind of like ballooning and stuff and before you say it let me just say drumroll please we finally 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 have an editing oscar as well as oscars for music in both song and score we have Uh, the editing Took them seven years to be like, hey, you know that one art form that is only exists in movies? Maybe we should give them props too. Uh, but yeah, we finally have editing and we finally have music. So I feel like even in like the awards, we're starting to see this feel like, okay, this really is starting to feel more and more like the Oscars that we all know. Um, right. and there's we have also score this, and we have song. We have score and song. And this also feels like the first official uh, Oscar snub. Because people are literally like protesting that like Betty Davis for Human Bondage and Myrna uh, Loy for The Thin Man don't get a nomination, and one of them eventually de- I think right. they corrected for they- uh, like who ends up getting one. But when because when they first announced it, everybody was like, "How is Betty Davis not nominated for this?" Betty Davis is given a write-in nomination for of Human Bondage. It is that's right. They start to classify it as a write in so that we all know like this was not an original nomination. But yes, even though that movie was not that much of a hit, her performance in it was just such a powerhouse that it was seen as an outrage when she did not get nominated. Yeah, so this is in on January 16th, 1935. They made a rule where voters could disregard the printed ballot and do write-in names if there was another candidate they preferred, which I'd be curious to see if there have been other write-ins that have gotten onto the nominee, uh, the nominee list, or I feel like they've changed their judging, obviously, since then. What um, I'm reading says this is only one of two times this happens, and I don't know what the other time is. So we'll, I guess we'll get to that, but I don't, yeah, it, it's not a common occurrence. But Claudia Colbert wins, and uh, even though she was also in Cleopatra, which we'll talk about that in a second, but what's funniest to me about this is she didn't think she was going to win. So she was about to board a train to New York when the uh, Academy official stopped her, and uh, they had them hold the train uh, as she rushed down to collect her prize, which is, of course, ironic because there's a titular, uh, or not titular, there's a big scene in this film where they refuse to hold a bus uh, for the character. And that kind of kicks everything off. So I just, I love the irony of that, of like, they wouldn't hold the bus for her, but now they're holding the train because she won the, the Oscar. Um, but she was I like can just imagine being her, uh, a passenger on that train and being told, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're so sorry, uh, Claudette Colbert is supposed to be on this train, so we're just going to have to wait for just a few <laughs> more minutes because um, she, uh, she won an Academy Award about four minutes ago, and they are, they are rushing here as fast as they can to bring her that statue. And I just imagine like the the crowd is not giving a shit. They're just like, I gotta no. leave now, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We're just gonna we're gonna hold on for a few more minutes. Claudette Colbert has now gone back to the theater to the hotel where uh, she is being presented with her award by Shirley Temple. What a great <laughs> night! What a great night for the movies. She will be back here 
any minute now. Just hold on just a yeah. few more minutes, ladies and gentlemen. I would say that we care about your satisfaction, but you're not famous and she is. So well, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the Shirley Temple of it all because she wins a special miniature award at the age of six. And she do you know how many movies she made that came out in 1934? I would guess what, 12? Nine. She had nine, nine films it? come out. That's almost one film per month uh, uh, in 1934. And she's six. And she receives a special uh, yeah. miniature award, uh, which is incredible. There are 16 categories this year, including... no, And then one additional category, which is the Academy Juvenile Award, which I do think they give out many times in the future, almost as if it's its own category before they finally discontinue right. it. But yes, uh, Shirley Temple wins this. She is the youngest person ever of all time to win That's an right. Oscar. Uh, to this day, yeah. My wife, Harry Bosch, loves Shirley Temple. I, I've, I'm like, I'm sure I've seen Shirley Temple movies. I just couldn't. If nothing else, you must have seen, like, because we're about the same age, like, in the 90s, uh, Cartoon Network would relentlessly play these infomercials that was like, it's the best of Shirley Temple, of the 34 DVD pack. And it was like, uh, it would show all of her songs. Like, eh, yes, yes. Okay, I definitely saw that. Oh, my God. Yes. Like, that clip of the animal crackers song like still lives with relentlessly me um but aside yes. i'm sure i've seen one or let's, two of them but I let's go to yeah. burbank and burn down the cartoon <laughs> network building there's a couple that i i remember seeing like my 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 nanny's place but aside from that like i can't nanny be my grandma uh but i i can't think of too many that i can remember like the names of like i know i've seen the movie that the animal crackers was in but the other ones all kind of right. blend together for yeah, but that uh, that's definitely the biggest like miniature award that we see. Uh, we still see Disney sweep the cartoon uh, short category, uh, which I think they dominate, like you said, for what, like a decade or something like that. He has he wins it nine years in a row. Yeah. And something that was really interesting to me. So we talked about this a bit last week and I will probably talk about it again next week. But so Frank Lloyd, if you guys for those who didn't listen last uh, year, Frank Lloyd uh, won for best director um for cavalcade for some for reason cavalcade and, and he uh the the host is like uh come up here frank and take your word frank capra was also nominated and went up uh thinking that he had won and in a zoolander like moment had to walk back of course this year he wins uh but what's interesting about this year is frank lloyd is the president of the academy for this year which makes me wonder i don't know thumb on the scale or do you think it's just this is kind of the way it worked out I mean, are you asking me if I were the president of the Academy and had the ability to manipulate the award wins backstage? Would I do it? Answer. Absolutely. Yes, I would. Who yeah, wouldn't? <laughs> I would be so goddamn corrupt if I had any kind of power. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I would bring like Mitch McConnell levels to the Academy where I always <laughs> get to choose. Like, it's just all comedies. They're just it would be we're like giving another Oscar yeah. to David Wayne. Uh, no, it would be just... like 2029 and I would be giving Phantom Thread best picture. People would be like, Phantom Thread <laughs> came out in 2017. I said, I don't care. I'm, I'm giving it best up. picture again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And I think this has to be the most, maybe not ever, but this is has to be the most nominated best pictures so far because we see 12. Even though every other category has essentially three, maybe five nominees, right. we see 12 films nominated this year. I that I think you are right. I'm just looking at it really quick to confirm because I'm pretty sure that's correct. Because that's I can't. Yeah, because after they ballooned it in, again in 2010, I can't think of another year that big. But I, I I'm 12, just I was the next. So surprised. in 1935, it's it's once again it's 12. Okay. Because it's 
you know, but it's, it's also 10 crazy in 1936. Okay. And then when do we get down to like the five and we're stuck at five? It's Is that 10, like okay. 40? So, so it's, it's 12 in 1935 and then it's 10 until uh 1944 okay that's what i thought so yeah this is like the most films we'll ever see nominated and there's a lot of great ones in here we have the thin man we have cleopatra uh we have the gate of orsay we have here comes the navy there's we have imitation of life like there's a lot of like big films uh that are nominated here i don't think have you seen the gay uh have you seen the gay dave orsay not since like college but yeah it's on hbo max so like and my my nana was in town uh, a couple weeks ago so we watched it and it's great it's a it's the oh, third right. of nine of the fred astaire ginger rogers classics mm-hmm. and i think it's just worth noting here because i think it's a big reason why we get the score and even though it doesn't win score i think that the gay divorcee is a big reason why we get the score and the song categories into this year because we it originally is called best scoring which is what we now know to be best original score mm-hmm. and it's good that category is going to exist for a couple more years but then in 1942 the musical genre is going to be so huge that they're going to split it into best uh film score and best and best or sorry they're going to split it into best score for a dramatic film and mm-hmm. best score for a musical film so musical movies are going to have their own music category that's and right. yeah. from 1942 until 1985, they do that category at the Oscars every year except for, I think, three years. Wow, that long. That's a lot longer than I would have guessed. That's amazing. I know. Like, imagine, lose, like, like, 1985, the they still have enough musicals coming out to be giving a best musical score Oscar. That's awesome. I feel like they would get into the uh, the Golden Globes territory, the Martian winning best comedy, where it's just like, okay, well, let's let's sneak this one into the category. It's not quite a musical, but right. Uh, but it's like I do, you know, we talked. Or maybe about they do the thing where there's couple, like less nominees. Yeah, we talked about this a couple weeks ago about like I do think there is value. You know, obviously the Golden Globes has those gaffes where something like the Martian gets a nomination for best comedy, and we can mm-hmm. make fun of that. But I do think there is something to be said about the value of drama and comedy categories for a lot of these awards because they allow comedy movies to thrive in uh like an award setting where normally they're not allowed to like i if you google i'm not saying this is a respectable source but if you Mm -hmm. google comedies to win best picture you get eight movies out of 92 you get this you get you can't take it with you which is the next movie capra is gonna make that's you right. Get going, going my way, which is a musical. So asterisk. Mm-hmm. Tom Jones, technically a comedy. The Sting, which I would not consider to be a comedy. No, that's that's really toe in the line. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a heist movie. You get mm-hmm. Annie Hall, the artist, Green. Oh, and even Green Book. I, I the more I think about, it, the more I'm like, that's not a comedy. Even even though like the dumb and, just because the dumb and dumber guy tries to make blind spotting doesn't mean your movie is a comedy. Um. But alas, um, but it's still it's like I think you don't have to have the different uh, the difference. I think if you're going to have 10 films nominated, there's room to let a couple comedies slip through there. And that's what I would uh, prefer uh, if the Oscars were to start seeing more comedies rather than to have like the best picture, like kind of what we did in 1927, where it's like most outstanding artistic whatever. I'd rather be like, no, this is a best picture worthy film, because, um, again, that's what our whole podcast is. I think there's just a disparity between movies that are just a good time at the theater 
and Mm -hmm. movies that are important and need to be regaled for their importance. And it's very rare that a comedy is allowed to be both of those things. Like, you know, I'm sure you can say the same thing, but like some of my best theater going experiences are seeing comedies. And I feel like 100% more than almost any other genre of film, comedy is the genre that most benefits from being seen in a theater when you can mm-hmm. laugh at it with strangers. Yeah. And to me, it's also the hardest genre to make. I think it's the hardest right. thing in the world to, you can tell if a movie's not working by listening to the audience. This is the only I, genre that it's true. I honestly think that probably my best theater going experience of the last 10 years is seeing spy opening night. Oh, sure. I saw that at uh, the South by premiere and it tore the house. I'm fucking jealous of you. Yeah. Spy. (laughs) And then, uh, um, 21 jump street, which I saw at the South by premiere. Me too. Yeah. I was even going to say like McGrew, like South by is the perfect place. South by Southwest for the uninitiated is the perfect place to, uh, to see a comedy good or bad with a thousand people who are drunk or stoned or just have watched eight movies that day, but are all film fans and all want to see like a film succeed. Um, and those are three definitely of my favorites uh, of my, of the last like 10 years as well. They're I'm great. Totally and it's just, agree. you know, we're, it, it just, it speaks to just a kind of movie that doesn't get really made anymore, which again, I just come back to how absolutely wild it is that not only does this movie, it happened one night, win best picture, it sweeps the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It is it a sweeps. sweep. It is one of only three films to do it. Like it is that good. And yet, we rarely ever get to see a comedy be granted this level of respect ever again. Absolutely. Even and, in the nomination process, yeah. And in addition to being a huge Oscar player, it's a massive blockbuster hit. It's one of the top 10 highest grossing movies of the year. And this is what I wanted to say for. So I felt really bad about the box office shenanigans we did last week. Mm-hmm. I want to try to guess the last time a comedy was in the top 10 highest grossing movies of the year oh gosh okay okay so i want I'm, you to pull that i want you to pull that up while we keep talking about other stuff but I want to. okay i'll uh, i'll see if i can figure that out uh or actually let's both guess and then you can look up the the site because you you're you know this because it's not box office mojo anymore right well uh there is it's just you know box office mojo was my favorite website of all time it was so good okay and it's been well ha- like have you seen what they did to it yeah they tried to make like imdb or whatever right they yeah it was well, it and IMDb are both owned by Amazon, and they just like Box Office Mojo just used to be. I could, I could go to any single weekend, um, since 1982, and tell mm-hmm. you the box office of that weekend down to the day. Yeah, and they've gotten rid of all of that, and now it's just like you can get the broad strokes, like top ten of the year and stuff, but it's it's much harder to get. And like they did a great job with like genre breakups or like comparisons, so it'd be like. You could pick a weekend and be like, all right, I want to see what the what July 4th weekend metrics were from 1990 to 1996. And you could pull that up on Box Office Mojo. Like, they don't do that anymore. Right. Well, I, I'm i not sure where uh, would be the best place to find it. I, I'm going to throw out my guess, though. That Movie Numbers or- is a really good site. That's I, I direct everyone that, like me, like laments the loss of Box Office Mojo to go to Movie Numbers. Because mm-hmm. they are they've kind of taken... They've risen to the occasion of knowing that people are going there because of Box Office Mojo, and they're really starting to build out their site. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'll am i throw it out that I'm going to guess either Bridesmaids or Hangover... No, Hangover 2. 
which I think both, both of which are 2011. Yeah, I would that yeah. that is my guess as well. Okay. Um, and maybe Ted. No, I feel like like 2012 was such a big like uh year that that would. Well, been you look up 2011 because I'll look up 2012. Uh, okay, I'll yeah, because I feel like it was one of those two years. Let's see, yeah. 2011. Box office. Are we talking domestic or worldwide? Domestic. Okay. Uh, it does. Shoot, neither make the cut for uh. It's all uh. It's like Harry Potter's and Transformers, Twilight's. Oh no. Uh, Hangover Part Two is number four in uh. Hangover Part. Okay, so, yeah, we don't talk enough about how Hangover Part Two was a massive movie that no one talks about. Like just yeah, absolutely, it's... absolutely like massive. I think more of... people would if it wasn't for Hangover Three. I feel like it would be. It's like the I same never... with the Matrix. I feel like yeah, people would uh revere it more nowadays if we didn't have like two awful sequels afterwards oh uh, for... shit oh are we gonna start talking about it well because i will also say bridesmaids was number 12 that year did ted, i did i strike ted did number I hit... nine 2012 oh shoot okay so yeah yeah uh... ted is the last just pure comedy movie to be in the top 10 domestic grossing movies yeah. of the year that makes sense because you know i wouldn't really count because you could say like oh these like disney or pixar movies have comedy and it's like yeah but it's not a comedy comedy i mean it's like not... what free, what gets me is that like uh like these sites they classify something like the new because kevin hart is in jumanji so jumanji mm-hmm. is a comedy I, I would say jumanji is a comedy though like it's uh, more J- of jumanji like an is a, movie, it's an adventure but... family film that's what jumanji sure. is or like because tom holland is funny as spider-man like the spider-man's are, yeah like yeah. No, that's what like, I, I agree with you. I'm just like, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, it's a comedy, but it's like, we're really because Taika Waititi directs really Thor, so we're counting Thor as a comedy. Mm hmm. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I, we're saying the same thing. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's the alternative and punk of iTunes, uh, where it's like, oh, just everything kind of falls into the six category. And it's like, no, this is still this movie, you know? But yeah, in terms of true laugh out loud, just comedy, and even a lot of the you know comedies that you listed for, that have won Best Picture, many of them are I would say argue are more dramas with comedic elements. Many of them are musicals. Many of them, like even like Annie Hall, I would almost argue is more of a drama than a comedy. So it's like we really, I think this is really the only like comedy, like laugh out loud, crowd pleaser comedy to win. Well, the and and the screwball comedy is so tied to the great depression because a big element yeah. of screwball comedies is a class disparity where mm-hmm. you know best exemplified by this movie you have kind of a, a good honest working stiff who can't get a job and then a spoiled rich girl who throws a stake out the window yeah that's why i'm surprised cavalcade was such the hit that it was i know neither of us like liked that movie but i'm also just i can't imagine like watching this and just all their you know, them complaining, even though, like, they both, like, live in this, like, even, like, the poor family eventually becomes, like, a very, a pretty wealthy family running the bar and stuff. It's just, I, I don't understand why it was a big hit for the time, I suppose. I mean, but sometimes when we look sense. at the movies that were very successful uh, quite a long time ago, I just think about the fact that being alive in the 1930s probably fucking sucked. So, like, mm-hmm. if there was a movie to go see just to forget you existed for a while, people were going to go see it. Absolutely, sure. I mean, uh, and, and, and I say that with no judgment because it's the year 2020. And if movie theaters were open, I would be going to movies all the time to forget I exist because that's what I rely on cinema for. Right. Well, it's only 1934, but I think in about, oh, what is Snow White? Is Snow White like 36? 30, I feel like Snow White's like 36 or 37, but 
we're about we still we have the comedy or we so we have the animated shorts but we're not going to have animated features until like 2001 2001 and what do you think of that because i feel like animated films become at least from like talking to my nanny about like when she would go to like films it was primarily like snow white and pinocchio and these like you know obviously totally ran by like disney ran the table but it's like i don't i think snow white gets like a uh like a some sort of special award snow white is uh a 1938 movie 38 okay no 37 i'm sorry it's 1937 okay got it you were right it's a 1937 movie, and it is nominated for Best Musical Score at the 38 mm. Oscars. And then in the 39 Oscars, because the movie is such a monumental, like, impactful hit, Disney is granted an honorary Oscar for the movie. So it's almost like right. they realize they fucked up by mm-hmm. not giving Snow White, like, by not inventing the best animated feature Oscar in 1938 to give it to Snow White, so they give Disney an honorary Oscar for it instead. Yeah, and it's not like there's that much competition at this time, but still, we don't get one until 2001? That's crazy. Disney's kind of the only game in town that is Mm -hmm. peddling in feature film animation, so the Academy doesn't feel the need to honor it because they're like, what, are we just gonna give Disney this award every year? Which is ironic. (laughs) <laughs> Which is ironic because they're already doing it for shorts and exactly the joke about the best animated feature category is that whatever Pixar does is going to win every year. And of course, what won the first year? Shrek! Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's I don't but know. That's, it, now Shrek, that I have no longer... Shrek is produced by DreamWorks, which is made, mm-hmm. which is a company that is founded in part by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the Disney guy who oversaw Lion King and one of his big chips on his shoulder through his whole tenure at Disney as he tur- as he single-handedly turned that company around and ushered in the Disney Renaissance was that even like you had Beauty and the Beast getting nominated for best picture and he was yeah. mad because like that was seen as a consolation prize and he thought animation deserves its own award and he spent Absolutely. the like his whole tenure at Disney lobbying the Oscars to make that award and they never did it and then he went off and he formed Dreamworks with David Geffen and Steven Spielberg and he kept at it and then they finally made it, and Shrek, a DreamWorks movie, wins the first Oscar for animated feature. I fucking love it yeah. so much. It's great, but then it's just the 90s. You think of what could have been. It's like the Lion King absolutely should have uh, been up for an award. Or same with, like, I would argue, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame, or even, like, Hercules Milan. Like, we have, like, all of the Pocahontas. best films that are all getting tragically remade relentlessly now coming out in this era. And there's, uh, it's just a shame that there was nothing to be able to give them more aside from like the, the song Oscar, which I guess they started to run the table on around that time. I, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's like the music categories is, you know, you know, it's kind of telling that snow white is going to get nominated only for score. And like mm-hmm. music is going to be the bread and butter for the feature length animated movies for the entirety of the 20th century. Exactly. Yeah, but in the meantime, it's. I will nice say, to, like you know, yeah. as a fan, like I, I love animation, and I do feel like more animated movies should be nominated for Best Picture. I will put uh, Tangled, Moana, and Princess and the Frog up against any of the Disney Renaissance movies from the '90s. Oh, uh, you just want some big points with me bringing up Princess and the Frog. I saw that. I've seen that movie. In theaters Princess and the Frog times. fucking rules. I saw it for the first it's time the last year. I love it so much. My favorite ride at Disneyland that is not Star Wars related is splash mountain i know i know i know i just like it it's a good ride i am so goddamn excited that they are retheming that to be princess and the frog 
no yeah me too get rid of all that other stuff and it's it's perfectly made for it it is like just from an enjoyment factor maybe my favorite uh disneyland ride but it's also just yeah it's it's i wish like disney was making more movies like that instead of doing this whole live action thing because like that's maybe one of my last favorite but every time they make these movies every time they make these live action movies they make a billion dollars like i you know it's yeah i do think that we as a culture have to bear some responsibility for the direction that cinema has gone like when we turn out absolutely for, they're following our lead it's like oh you want more yeah. superhero films here's more superhero films yeah when yeah. we turn when out you don't for want something, as many comedies here's yeah. less comedies like do, do you yeah. know that when you go to the highest grossing franchises of all time like it like the mm-hmm. the cumulative amount that a franchise has made the lion king which the, the the lion king franchise is considered to be the animated movie from 1994 and the live action remake from 2019 those two movies are considered to be a franchise and just those two together are the 19th highest grossing franchise of all time. That's amazing. No, it's terrifying, Andy. It's scary. <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible to You're me. You're calling that it a franchise. Films... It's the same movie. Well, I think it's amazing because for, you know, I'm thinking of like Star Wars, Harry Potter, all these films that have nine, 10, 20 films with them for two films to be in the top 20. That's really impressive to me. It's, it's fucked yeah. up. But it's It's really impressive to me. And it's just like, I I, I, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I, I feel like the last uh, of what we would call to consider to be a traditional studio comedy Mm -hmm. is um, the house. Did you see the house? The the Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler, they run a casino out of their home movie. No, I feel like there's been some since then. Even like I like if if in a normal world, I feel like Irresistible could have been put up in that category. Like we we still have these like uh, leading man, leading woman rom com kind of situations. Do we, we still have like the traditional comedy? Yeah, absolutely. I feel but, like uh, anytime. What, like, but what what's the, the last one you can name? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. Let me think about it for a minute. But I know that I saw one in 2019 that would that you would count as like a traditional like like what like what are your rules for saying a comedy yeah made by a studio wide release those are my two caveats like in a normal year you wouldn't have considered like because borat if if the, this year hadn't been this year like you wouldn't consider that for like the love no i would i borat. definitely you would consider, consider borat, borat but borat's never borat 2 is never gonna play in theaters it's bought by I'm, aware, I'm just saying in a covid free world that was a studio film. Like we're still seeing these like studio films, but Amazon or is your point is so more much... that we're seeing this switch more towards the streaming. I'm talking of the thing. traditional Hollywood studios, Sony, Paramount, mm-hmm. Universal, Disney, Fox, Warner brothers. One of those right. decides they're going to spend $40 million to make a studio comedy with movie stars and put it out. 40 million. Okay. I see what you're saying. See, that's a little bit different. For sure. Yeah. Like that's, in, you know, like Lionsgate acquiring, you know, something like an indie comedy putting out or like, something like a blind spotting that's a Sundance play and they get to put out and you can like call blind spotting comedic, but it's not the same. And, no, no, of course and it's not a $40 million move by any stretch, but I kind of like that. I like that we're starting to get back to what we started seeing kind of in the nineties of like these closer to like, like I guess in the nineties, it would have been more like $30 million, but we're seeing these like five or even million dollar movies that like, like book smart that were made for like dirt, nothing that become these huge hits. And that feels as close to like, the riot, like but the Booksmart wasn't a huge like hit. Violent. Like financially, Booksmart was not a huge hit. Was it really? I thought it did really well. No, no, it like it Shoot. noticeably. I mean, like it did good because everyone you and I know in Los Angeles went to go see it because we knew it was going to be good and right. Beanie Feldstein high forever. But Booksmart noticeably, like 
uh, that's A24, right? Is it A24 or Annapurna who did the Yeah. Uh, I think it was A24. Okay, so they, they, they gamble. Yeah, it's, no, it's Annapurna. Okay. It's Annapurna. They gambled on it being counter-programming in Memorial Day weekend, and so they opened, they, they, they sent it wide against Aladdin. Oh, wow. And the problem That's is, horrible. like, that model doesn't exist anymore. Like, okay, like, yeah. 12 years ago, The Dark Knight opens, and it's the, mm. biggest, it's the highest, biggest opening weekend of all time. And what people talk about a lot less is that on the same day that The Dark Knight came out, Mamma Mia came out and it overperformed mm-hmm. at a 33 million dollar opening because that was the yeah. counter programming movie to the Dark Knight. We don't like that's that is comedy's bread and butter is like you make the lighter more accessible movie to go up against the big blockbuster. We don't see that model anymore. Well, what about uh Game Night? I feel like Game Night came out after the house. Did that one do well? Okay, you know what? I I take everything back. Game Night fucking rules. But even Game Night like a movie I love and I love like more and more. Like, I don't think game night cracked a hundred million. Oh, wow. That's really, that's amazing to, to hear that. But that's also, I guess that is kind of in the genre of what we're talking about with like, it happened one night. I, I but I kind of like and, that. And, we're still and, getting and these game like smaller. Night is, yeah. Like game night. I love, but like game night's a comedy thriller. You know what I mean? No, I would say it's, it's a com- comedy with thriller elements. If, if we're talking that Jumanji is like an action adventure with comedic elements, I would argue that game night is first and foremost a comedy that happens to be within the universe of a thriller genre. Game Night made $69 million in the U.S. That's it? God oh, damn. I thought you were going to say nice. So it made $69 million no, in the I U.S. No, I, uh, I thought it was a smash. I thought everybody saw it. No, it, it, so, you know, $69 million U.S., $117 million worldwide, off of a $37 million budget. So, like, you know, 10 years ago, that's a respectable hit. I was just going to say, a reason I think we're not seeing this is also the rise of streaming, which overall I think is a good thing for starting to see more niche uh, comedies, I would call them, kind of being able to get this audience that they usually wouldn't see. Like, I've seen so many movies at South by now that I always thought, like, oh, I'm the only person that's ever going to see this movie that's never going to get a release. And then now in the last five years, we start to see Amazon and Netflix and Hulu really start to put their money where their mouth is and buy up all these films and give them a release, even if it's not a theatrical one. I agree Which means you. a lot of these films even uh, become less budget. But yeah, we're not seeing, I'll, I'll relent that we're not seeing as much of the classic this guy, this girl, $40 million budget comedy because they, it's true, they don't make money anymore. The audiences don't want to see it as much as uh, a studio, uh, like a, a, a superhero movie or what have you, or even like horror films that have been doing really well lately um, that are guaranteed to make their money back. I want to give credit to one more recent studio comedy, uh, Blockers, which I really, really loved. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's another. I mean, there's a lot of great ones in terms of quality, but I, I see what you're saying in terms of like, yeah, it hasn't been t- since Ted in 2012 that we've really seen a true comedy in the top 10. And that could just be the audience saying, well, we don't want these uh, I, well, as much as we want these other movies. You talk about streaming, though, and I, you know, it's like I'm speaking for my parents specifically, but I think it's a, you know, kind of a mentality that a lot of people have is, oh, I can wait to see that on Netflix. For sure. I can wait to see that on HBO, which I understand why we do that. But like that kills certain movies and certain genres of movies at the box office. Like you think of someone like Amy Schumer having a breakout hit with Trainwreck and she really only gets to, you know, we are trying to form her into like the next great comedy star. And then she does what snatched and she does she snatched and I feel pretty. 
which snatched bombs i feel pretty does okay but like that's it like okay yeah she cannot sustain a level of success to like be viable even though like she's perfectly like good at getting people to go see movies it's just how can you compete with a uh, black panther or an iron man yeah well and i feel like when I'm it costs the same amount of money to right when it costs the same amount of money to market i feel pretty as it does mm-hmm. to market justice league and right one of those is going to make so much more money. Like, what are you going to do? Well, that's why I'm really curious to see what theaters are going to look like in a post COVID world. Cause I feel like people are hungry to go back and we will see films succeed, but I think it's still going to be primarily these like event films because if COVID has taught us anything, it's, Oh, this is like all these different streaming options that are available. This is how you rent a movie. And it's, it's not this crazy $20 thing you thought it was. It's like two to $4. Right. So I, and and I think that's never really, really... going to change things. I never really rented movies digitally until the pandemic started. Oh, same. Absolutely. I did the either yeah. I'll go and see it in theaters immediately or I'll wait till it's on a streaming service or I'll just never watch it. Because I always assumed that like, oh, it's going to be like $20 to like rent this thing. Oh, it's going to be like this whole hassle. I don't want to have a library of movies. But now it's just like, oh, I can go to Amazon or even YouTube and rent like a bunch of these movies for like two to four or even five dollars. And it's opened me up to like a world of movies. And it's really, you know, obviously it's a lot less than I'm spending on theaters even with like the amc a-list thing or even like concessions like looped in i'm spending so much more uh, less money being able to like discover all these films that have always been readily available it's having a blockbuster within your tv and i think a lot of people are starting to discover that during covid so i'm very curious to see what theaters are going to look like if they're gonna you know this is a big a really big conversation we don't necessarily have to get into but if theaters are going to make it if if overall theaters are going to survive this thing the question of whether theaters are going to make it is huge and yeah in in the best of scenarios we come back to the theaters you know knock on wood in 2021 probably closer to 2022 and we're just going to be seeing the backlog of studio blockbusters because they're all going to be clamoring for screen space to make up for their lost revenue so it's going to be bond it's going to be wonder woman it's going to be dune it's going to be, what's the other, sorry, Black Widow. Like, you know, it, the yeah. ev- quote-unquote event films. And I am excited to see all of those movies. Don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. it's so weird how just right on the mark that George Lucas, Steven Spielberg talk from 2013 was, where they said mm-hmm. the future of exhibition is going to be you're going to have your Iron Mans that play in the theater for six months and cost $25 a ticket, and every other kind of movie is going to go straight to VOD. Exactly. And that's, that's, it's amazing that they called it so early as well, but I don't know, like, just speaking personally, I... Uh, I was always yeah, I, really salty about that, just because those were the two guys that essentially invented the business model that led us to this point, but, like, it's George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. They're, they're right. They know what the fuck they're talking about. Well, but then they have the gall to say, like, oh, Netflix movies don't count as movies. They're TV movies. Um, and now, you know, we'll see this year. It's like, well, everything's a TV movie all of a sudden, even things that were meant to be. a few. We, we can get into that in a conversation later. All I was going to say is that I went 228 days without being in a theater. My roommates and I rented a theater to go see Jurassic Park, and it felt like watching it for the first time. There's really nothing like, you know, I have a great setup at home, uh, and most people, you know, a lot of people do nowadays, but there's still nothing like seeing a film with an audience, even if it's your friends, there's nothing like seeing like the big screen, the booming theaters and just being put into this dark room where you can't look at your phone. You can't do anything other than watch that. And I think the, the, there's a naive 
uh, Jimmy Stewart <laughs> version of me that thinks like there's enough people like that that are going to rally together and save theaters. And I'm not so much worried about the AMCs as I am kind of the independent theaters and the rep, uh, the rep theaters. But uh, I am for the first time in my life, gen genuinely concerned for the history of movie exposition exhibi exhibition, because it will change not only the way we watch films, but the types of films that we get to see. So that's a bigger conversation than uh, I'm sure we'll get into, but that is something that is genuine, genuinely on my mind a lot these days. And that just it, that so comes back to the question of what an Oscar win means. Like, obviously, the you know from nineteen from nineteen thirty four, the screwball comedy is going to go on to be a very very important genre in Hollywood over the next decade or so. But we never see one be a major Oscar player. So, mm -hmm. and, and you know, maybe that is by design. Like this movie won an Oscar, and it was a huge hit. The second thing is much more important than the first thing, and that's what leads some of the bigger studios to invest in making movies like this movie. And mm -hmm. it's just, you know, like, that was a time where it was like, okay, It Happened One Night was a big hit and won an Oscar. We need to make movies like It Happened One Night because those are the movies people want to see. Now, the, now, these days, it's like, well, we need to make a movie like a Green Book because that wins Oscars. And, mm -hmm. you know... Well, and you know what's interesting to me? Because, uh, like we said, three films have won this uh, this five-picture uh, uh, deal, one of which is Silence of the Lambs, which I don't know if I would put Parasite in that category, but for all intents and purposes, I'll say it's the only horror film, the only true horror film, to win Best Picture. And despite being one of three films to win the highest awards of winning I don't know five, if I consider Silence of the Lambs... Ones. I don't know if I consider Silence of the Lambs to be a horror Really? What would you What would you say, a thriller then, or...? It's a th it's it's thriller. Okay, I would consider it a horror. I think about it. it. It's something that I think about a lot in terms of like genre, and I feel like Silence of the Lambs to me is more. You know, it's a horror thriller on the best of days. Right. I just the like when we talk about a horror movie that wins Best Picture. Like I would almost categorize something like uh, Shape of Water as closer to being a horror movie. Wow, we're really getting into like what is not even what is an Oscar picture. What is a genre? Because it is. I don't know if I would consider uh, the Shape of Water a horror film, um, right? Just because it has like I well, even though it's I an homage it's to an, a horror film. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's tough. I don't know. It's not what I would traditionally think of as a horror film, though. But then that just makes you think like, well, what do you think this genre means? And then what does the Academy think that this genre is? Because that goes back to the comedy thing as well. Like, if you look at it from traditional comedies, it's just this movie. If you look at films with comedic elements, the list really blossoms all of a sudden. So, I don't know. That's a, that, that wasn't the point I was meant to make, but that is interesting. And my, my hand-wringing over Silence of the Lambs largely comes from the fact how that movie and Seven have essentially defined procedural cop television for the past 25 years. Like... Pretty much everything, you know, from your Bones to your NCIS, your CSI, Law and Order, what have you, like every single show is doing Seven or Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, which to the the latter's point could be again another sign of an Oscar, uh, kind of defining history. Because like you said, with at least it happened one night, we do even if the next wave of films that inspires don't get the same Oscar love that it did, we start to see this real renaissance of, uh, you know, star pairing and like wacky comedy and stuff like that. Um, 
And you know that is obviously, and then you know Clark Gable is like the biggest fucking star in the world. And then we have Gone with the Wind, which you know is one of the most famous uh, best picture winners of all time. So it is interesting to look at like the 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 both tangible and intangible legacy of an Oscar film, what it does for other Oscar movies, but also what it does for the genre as a whole. Yeah, and like you know, I think the legacy of this movie, like even if it hadn't, won, I mean, like it's winning Oscars is vital because we wouldn't be watching it and talking about it if it hadn't, but. It is just so baked into the DNA of the romantic comedy genre that, like, that is this movie's legacy, first and foremost. Sure. Absolutely. And that is, uh, it's, a, it's a great film that we happen to watch one night. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I watched it in the middle of the day, so on, only you did that. It's a great one, though. It is, like, I would say it's definitely in the high tier of uh, my favorite best pictures we've watched so far and it's going to be really tough to knock this one down yeah like i mean i we're gonna get to rebecca and that's gonna be my god tier movie for ever <laughs> and ever but i i can't sure. imagine any of the movies we're gonna watch the next uh what seven movies we're gonna watch i can't imagine any of them are gonna hold a candle to this just in terms of like how unique this is against the backdrop of what we consider to be oscar movies like yeah, I'm excited to watch Mutiny on the Bounty, but like Mutiny on the Bounty, it's a big epic drama about semen. Like, OK, cool. Like I can get in the mindset for that, but it's mm -hmm. not the same. Well, it's interesting because I think the film that won before Rebecca is Gone with the Wind. And to me, that yes, like the one of the definitive Oscar Best Picture winners. It's the, it is I the movie it that yeah. statistically more human beings saw in the theater than any other movie ever. Absolutely. Uh, but I suppose we'll save that for another episode. Uh, we will. Thank you for listening. Please, please, please uh, rate, review, and subscribe. This is our first episode that we're recording since we launched the podcast. We are happy with the reception we're getting, but I know please. if you're listening to this, every single podcast that you listen to asks you to rate, review, and subscribe, and you probably think it doesn't matter. I have worked in podcasts. I have seen the metrics. Mm -hmm. giving a five-star review even just five stars with no review review is better doing that does actually really impact the ability of this podcast to be shown to other people and you know i won't speak for andy but i know for me like i definitely hope this creates something of a community of people that i can gab with on twitter because i'd rather be talking about movies on twitter than i don't know everything else that's going on in the world so please rate review and subscribe yeah we'd love to if you're it if you're enjoying following along with us, if you're enjoying watching these movies along with us, uh, yeah, take the two seconds. Uh, we really appreciate it. And yeah, talk to us. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys are thinking about the movies too. If you're watching these along with us, we'd love to hear uh, your thoughts. You can find us on Twitter or letterboxd and um, yeah, we're uh, excited for uh, mutiny on a bounty for next week, but right. until then uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, uh, I come from a long line of stubborn idiots. <laughs>